0: As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat
1: between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth. It's not so often I get to speak to someone whose writings and lectures have inspired me. Joining us today, we have the amazing Dr. Layla Brown. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we even get into anything serious, I have a question for you, Dr. Layla Brown. Okay. Can you teach me how to smile? Because, your, because your pictures, honestly, that smile there is like, okay, I need to learn this.
0: <laughs> You know, honestly, I think I get it from my mama, so I don't even know if I could teach it. I think it's just... Oh, <laughs>
1: not not you of the smiling essentialism.
0: Say it again, I'm sorry.
1: Not you of the smiling essentialism.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Nah, no, I
1: was And <laughs> nah, all in seriousness, thanks for having me on. You describe yourself as a pan-African feminist. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so I want you, for my listeners, if possible, to unpack these terms for me. So first, by answering, why do you describe yourself or self-identify as a pan-African feminist? And even before that, what do these terms even mean?
0: <laughs> okay, so, you know, for me, I was raised in a political family. Okay. I My uncle was one of the co-founders of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And his own sort of political trajectory took him... Through CORE as like a young man, then the Black Panther Party, actually CORE SNCC, then the Black Panther Party, and then the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which was the mm-hmm. party called by Kwame and Yes. One sort of independence. And so I grew up as the child of two parents who were members of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. And my mother mm-hmm. was a member of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And I would say, as a kid growing up, you know, obviously my consciousness around. Not just my blackness in the sense of being a black person in the U.S., but a, but mm-hmm. again, an African blackness was enhanced both by my parents' political beliefs, but also the communities I grew up around. I mean, my mm-hmm. parents' friends from South Africa and Palestinian friends helped name me. Hello. Um, yeah. So <laughs> all of my siblings and I are, have Sekou in our name, which is for Sekou Toure. And I have brothers yes. Dr. Patrice Lumumba and Kwame Nkrumah. And then when I went to, so I didn't really, my identity as a woman didn't really fully develop until I went to college, but later on grad school, mostly grad school is when I started reading feminist texts, which are mostly white feminist texts, bourgeois white feminist texts. A mm-hmm. lot of that allowed me to question things about sort of gender Gender relations, even sexuality. And I felt like, you know, even though I think a, a number of the Pan Africanist leaders were thinking about questions of gender, what's important to me, I think, is the decision to name it outright. And so I think sometimes okay. the issues, the, the issues or concerns around gender can be a little occluded through okay. the way people understand Pan Africanism. But for me, the way that I understand Pan Africanism is the way Kwame Nkrumah Sekoture, Kwame Ture understood it, which is as a political objective, right? Which is the total okay. race in the United of Africa under scientific socialism. But what's important to me about- You know
1: you're going to have to unpack very briefly (laughs) what socialism means as well, yeah?
0: I'll do that. I'll do that. But what's important for me, so a lot of my own research focuses on Venezuela. And so I've been really interested in the ways the Bolivarian Revolution has taken up issues of class and race and gender. In ways that a lot of the sort of formal institutional attempts to, in, to institutionalize socialism haven't necessarily done, right? Mm-hmm. Even in the case of Cuba. And so I think it's important to call specific attention to the fact that while I am fundamentally concerned with the sort of economic class contradictions and race contradictions, that though that we can't ignore the ways in which uh, gender oppression continue to exist and manifest and just evolve over time. Mm-hmm. Um, And I guess to answer the question you said, you asked about scientific socialism, the thing that's important about scientific socialism is to understand that, you know, there are these utopic notions of socialism and there are even, you know, I don't know, it might not be the same kind of problem in Europe as it is in the U.S. But, you know, a lot of people, when Bernie Sanders was running, you know, the word socialism has come into sort of U.S. common parlance more recently. Yes. but. But it's still, and, and, and I believe there's
1: charges of, I believe there's charges of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC actually diluting what socialism is.
0: Well, because they're not socialists, right? Exactly. Like they, they have democratic social agendas, but they're not socialists, yes. right? Yes. And so, that's a, and so, socialism, because you know, socialism is the sort of, is an economic system, and communism is the sort of matured expression, the institutionalized form mm. of right. But scientific socialism is just to say that while, you know, whatever Marx observed in terms of the sort of history, the contradictions of class relations, the relationship between, you know, the workers and the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, workers and the owners, what he observed was a particular phenomenon. But, it, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily belong to Marx, right? It's a particular phenomenon that he observed at a particular point in time. But the idea what you're saying that, right
1: now is, I, sorry to cut you off, what you're saying no. right now, I watched a talk by Kwame Ture recently where he speaks of this point saying that, oh, I can't, I'm not a socialist because, you know, that comes from the white man. And he, he then mm-hmm. goes on to, I'm sure you're familiar with that. I don't want to mm-hmm. go into that. But, you know, he goes on to say, well, all Marx did literally, um, echoing what you just said, is he just observed the way things are and, and wrote about it. <laughs>
0: exactly. And not even just observed, it, but he observed it and wrote about it within his own context, right? And so. Yes we also have to take seriously our, the people who we follow who who wrote and observed about those kinds of things in their own context, which are yes. people, you know, Kwame Nkrumah is, I think, an easier one because he was literally a philosopher. I mean, that's what he studied, yes. you know, that's, but even people like Cabral, Siko Ture, Thomas Sankara, sort of later on, right, they were attempting to understand what the sort of origin, the kinds of ways that we exist as communal people, right? Communalism is a sort of precursor to, to socialism, right? And so mm-hmm. there are in which we already have you know the kind of fundamental social relations of socialism they're they, they are indigenous to us right but that this notion of scientific socialism is to say that like it is something that can be implemented in a particular way we don't have to call it African socialism or European socialism there are no differences in the way socialism exists right there are differences in culture and history and You know, all these other kinds of things, but socialism as Mm -hmm. a system to guarantee a particular kind of egalitarian relationship between human beings, a sharing Mm. of resources, a sharing of wealth, rather than a sharing of poverty, which is the way, you know sort of like mm. uh, people like to sort of classify it, um, is the sort of important context of scientific socialism, right? It sounds more
1: scary. So why are you not a pan-African feminist Marxist, for example? Or are you saying that Marxist critique is encapsulated in the term pan-Africanism?
0: Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, two of the most influential thinkers of Kwame Nkrumah were Marx and Marcus Garvey. And so, you know, a, a part of, also, also for me, I don't actually... If I were to identify with any sort of belief that is associated with the person's name, I would call myself Akumas mm-hmm. or Torres. I don't... Ooh, the, okay. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but... And, and, and this is also... I mean, this is the way the... So I... the, You know, after Kwame Ture died, there were sort of splits within the All-African People's Revolutionary Party in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and even the U.K. And so the... I hate to use the term, but I guess the faction of the party that I belong to is the AAPRPGC, which still has a small contingent in Guinea Conakry, right? Which is actually. Okay, yes you know, where Kwame Ture was when he passed away, um, the, the home that's there. There's a small library there that's kind of dedicated to the, the writings and teachings of all three of them, right? So Kwame Nkrumah Kwame Ture, and Sekou Ture. I don't call myself a Marxist because for me, the even what I would be would be a socialist more than anything else. And for me, socialism, the fact that the way that I understand Pan-Africanism is a particular goal towards instituting scientific socialism on the continent of Africa, in the in the interest of african peoples it, mm-hmm. it says all that so i don't so for me i don't have to mark marx marx as a particular
1: but is, is that is that an aversion to labeling yourself as marxist though
0: no i wouldn't say it's an aversion i just i don't marx does not own the the understanding of socialism right he documented he gave us some some names and some terms for the for us to share in common but we have our own sort of histories of practicing these ways of existing socially with each other and i and for me it's see so for me also as an as an academic right as an intellectual it's also important to Continue to mark the ways in which we contribute to a particular kind of intellectual history, and I think mm, right. as as African people, as Black people, are often obscured in that, right? And so, like when people think about, you know, the the theories that Kwame and Chroma had are easily um, applied elsewhere, but for whatever reason, when we as Black or African people, when we theorize, we are re- relegated and limited to our to our own experiences. But somehow, when other folks, when Europeans, Right. that Ooh. is universalized
1: okay okay this is what I love to hear okay okay I like that I like that <laughs> so you, you actually had a good segue when you said as an academic as an intellectual because my next question was what is the role of the academic in all of this in all of like bringing about liberation bringing about mm-hmm. a revolutionary praxis what is the role mm-hmm. of the academic?
0: for me, our responsibility is actually to do what Marx did, right? Is to do, I mean, you know, Kwame Nkrumah, because he was actually a head of state, I think took on different kinds of things, but as a, but as someone who isn't into intellectual or academic without the sort of power or backing of, you know, leading a state or some other kind of organization, we are mm-hmm. supposed to be studying and reading these things, documenting these things, documenting our own stories and and offering mm-hmm. analysis, right? So like, you know, I don't, I understand the ways in which that the, the project of Africanism was undone, right. In the mm. way, in which, you know, in Chroma and Samora Michelle and Gamal Abdel Nasser, the way they were targeted. Right. And this, and for yes. me, I see the same thing in the Latin American context. Right. So one of the things for me is that I read the Bolivarian revolution as as indebted to and part and parcel of the Pan-Africanist vision, right? And I would never say that it's only Pan-Africanist because I would never want to erase the contributions of Indigenous people. And I understand, you know, the ways in which, you know, Pan-Americanism in that sense has its own kind of origins. But I also see a lot of commonalities. In the what so in the in the Latin American context, they often refer to it as the pink tide, right? This kind of move in mm-hmm. the twenty first century, to you know, towards the left. And I see the same way that you know, there was this kind of systematic takedown of Lumumba, of yeah. farming from up the far right. secretary The same thing happened in the Latin American context, right? Like if you look in what was it around two thousand eight or two thousand nine? I mean, Lula was in power. Chavez, Lula in Brazil, Chavez yes. in Venezuela, Correa in Ecuador, the sort of Sandinistas in Nicaragua We're moving, you know, obviously you still have the Cuban revolution. I mean, there was there was a wave and there was a mm-hmm. systematic attempt to walk that progress back, right? And that was a push towards socialism. However imperfect, or, you know, whatever it was, that was a push that the people of Latin America were making and the, the U.S. government, CIA and whatever, yep. you know, European cronies, are you know contributed mm-hmm. to pushing that back and so at this mo- point we kind of have our last kind of strongholds and the that sort of pink tide has really ebbed in a way that you know i think it, there's so many similarities to what happened in the in the sort of that post-independence moment um, mm. I,
1: I, so you uh, kind of feel like what's the kind of ongoings in latin america
0: maybe offers us maybe a more of a
1: greater insight
0: absolutely and i mean i think it. We see it everywhere, right? Like, if we, you know, if you go back to the so called Arab Spring, right? Yes. When, whenever these kind of mass upheavals happen, you know, the powers that be focus their attention and they start saying, okay, this, yep. is, this is getting to be too much. And I saw, mm-hmm. again, back to your original question about the role of the academic, we have to make these connections, right? I think there mm. are. You know, most people are living our lives, right? Like we're doing our daily lives mm-hmm. and maybe don't have the time or the ability because of the ways in which capitalism just kind of pushes down on us all the time. Yep. So, our, so our responsibility as academics, as intellectuals, as, so I should say this, as radical or revolutionary academics or intellectuals, right? Because there, okay. are, there are plenty who exist- I
1: just got today. the title of the episode now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there are plenty who exist to maintain the status quo. Of and, course. you know, so for those of us who... And, and actually, the 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 default is to maintain the status quo. And so in order to not maintain the status quo, you have to actually actively operate in the other direction, right? Like, if you just exist, yeah. you will maintain the status quo. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, Kwame Ture says this, and Kwame Nkrumah also says this, even in, in Class Struggle in Africa, when he's kind of articulating... What does he call them? Like the, you know, the sort of indigenous, what does he call? Well, he, this is not the term he used. Well, he talks about the comprador classes, but he, you know, he talks about the potential of the indigenous bourgeoisie, you know, to all, to, to re, what is the work right term To reify, you know, all of these sort of mm-hmm. colonial or neo-colonial or capitalist, you know, processes. And so, like I said, we, we actually have to actively be about the work of breaking these things down and making these connections. Um, and that's what's been the most, I think, rewarding to me in doing my own research is always seeing the ways in which everyday people are attempting to
1: make I mm.
0: mean, what's happening? I mean, I think we saw it the best this summer. When George Floyd? Yes. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that literally that sent reverberations around literally the globe. I mean, being from the UK, I definitely feel it kind of reigniting reignited the global reckoning on race, I would say. Mm-hmm. But I want to kind of, it's just, I'm, by the way, this is fantastic. I'm actually learning so much right, in right now. So thank you so much. <laughs> so I want to kind of, just actually a personal question for me. I know you can help me. Do, I mean, hopefully it's beneficial to some of my listeners as well. In the kind of quest and search for moral consistency then, People will then say, and this and I would love to hear your response that, you know, communism always brings about violence and destruction mm-hmm. or you know look what happens in South America and the dictatorial or dictatorships or despotic mm-hmm. regimes and then and this to kind of tie in for the names you've mentioned I was reading um, a book written by a friend called Becoming K- Kwame Toure mm-hmm. where he speaks about you know Kwame Toure speaks about Sekou Toure as well and he speaks about the failed coup attempt against Sekou Ture, and mm-hmm. how Sekou Ture then went off and you know rounded up people he believed to be dissidents and you know, even the numbers are skewed, but he executed quite a lot of people. How do you square? Do you feel? feel I know it's very kind of a loaded question, so I'll get. I'll up to your <laughs> response to the fir- to the former part of the question is. Communism and these regimes always going to bring about death and destruction. And the second part of where do we find our moral consistency? Do we say that? And I don't want to kind of put words in your mouth, but do we kind of say that, well, if the struggle, if we believe in the struggle, then then violence is like, as Malcolm says, by any means necessary, is fine. Because mm-hmm. that was Kwame Ture's response. Kwame Ture, when asked about Sekou rounding up certain people, Kwame Ture said that, well, the revolution must be secured by any means necessary.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is funny because this all this is a question that we're always contemplating, right? So yeah. I think I'll go to the second part first. Okay. The question the question of violence, right? Are, do we not experience a, like an inane amount of violence in our lives every day, right? Poverty is violence. Of course. Uh, illiteracy is violent. Lack of access to health care is violent. Lack of access to safe housing is violent. Not being able, like not knowing if when you leave your home and you're trying to go somewhere, if you're going to make it back home, whether it be because of people in your own community who are struggling to make their own way, or whether it be because of agents of the state, like the police, mm-hmm. all of that is violent, right? And so this notion that we've become accustomed to a certain type of violence. And the thing that the people who impose that violence on us fear the most is that we return that violence. And when I yes. say that, I don't, and I don't mean that in any kind of like, at, at this point with the, with the way in which technology has developed, like the nature of guerrilla warfare, it, don't, it wouldn't work the same way that it worked. You know, Absol- people- no, honestly,
1: I, I'm down with the cause. I tell people that all the time, but some of my, like, this is um, my leftist friends. I do love you. You know, I'm sitting in your camps. I'm not an agent. But when you man talk about a revolution in the West, I'm like, listen, mm, but you know what? Some of us ain't built like that in it. <laughs>
0: it's not even a question of being built like that it's, it's again a question of being having an accurate understanding of the monster that we're up against right you know of course it's very at this point in time you know going off the grid is not what it used to be like there were t- like you know in the, in the era of freaking i don't know bonnie and clyde like you can go yeah. on you know a three-week you know, robbery speed because people can't track you like they, you know, like exactly. there exactly other ways in which we have all these digital imprints everywhere. So it's it's a, it's a very different. To yes. so the first part of your question, though, I would say it is very hard for any of us, even those of us who believe in the systems of socialism or communism. To be able to have a fair assessment or analysis of what has gone wrong with them. Because the thing is, socialism and communism are not systems that can be implemented on individual bases. And when I say individual, I mean, Mm. right. Like, even one of the things that you know is the case in Cuba right like when the Soviet Union was still in power when they were able to sort of support and prop up the Cuban revolution economically a lot of the contradictions about, around race really I, I wouldn't say disappeared but they ceased to be significant in daily life okay and then the moment the Soviet Union collapsed and Cuba had to sort of reopen its what do you call it, it's tourist industry all yes. of these issues resurfaced immediately which means they never went away right yes And the issue with that is saying that, like, because of the history of colonization and slavery, because of all these sort of monocrop societies, I mean, even Venezuela, right? Like, Venezuela, as much as the work that it's done to support its population just through social programs from oil revenue, I think the last time I looked, I think it was something like 80. Eighty-five to ninety-two percent of the GDP was based on oil revenue. Like, if you do not produce everything your people need to survive, then you cannot survive alone. You have to have mm. some national cooperation. And so, to be able to talk about the successes and failures of communism or socialism in the context of a global capitalist world, it's it's an unfair assessment already okay. from the beginning. Yes. And then on top of, and I think that that's also what leads to what people observe as despotism or dictatorship, because a part of what happens is that you know, like think about Thomas Sankara, it was his best friend. I think about that a lot, you know. That yeah,
1: that
0: That was who took him out, and so you have. to-
1: And people forget Thomas Sankara passes away in eighty seven. That's that's only the other day. That's only the other day.
0: It was in my lifetime, so wow. (laughs) And so you know that's what those leaders are up against, right? They're in this moment. So I was even so I teach a making the African diaspora and African feminisms course, and in my class, yes. in my making the African diaspora right now, we're reading class struggle in Africa. And we Mm -hmm. watched a documentary on Nkrumah and we were having this very conversation about Nkrumah becoming a dictator towards the end and this class and this question of a single party state, right? First of all, so if you believe, you know, that representative democracy is the epitome of sort of democratic maturity, cool, whatever. But, you know, I live in the U.S., we ostensibly <laughs> exist in a two-party system, but what we actually exist in is the two sides of the same coin system. Hundred percent. You know, they're they are loyal opposition. They have the they have fundamentally the same interests. The only yes. slight difference, because when it comes to foreign policy, they are exactly the same. They're, exactly. The only thing that might be slightly different is there. There's a little bit of a pressure release valve when it comes to some domestic policies. But even as we yes. can see right now. We still haven't even got this latest little fourteen hundred dollars stimulus check. So you know, that's not that. waiting for the
1: stimmy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, like what I see in those tendencies. Is an attempt to consolidate power, knowing that so many people have interests against. You. That was mm, that actually okay. Was one of the biggest is that
1: what you applied to Seco instance then?
0: Absolutely, I think all of them, all of them. Okay. And it's funny because I think Chavez was quite aware of that, right? And attempted Mm -hmm. to try, because Venezuela does have a multi-party system. There are several parties that actually are viable in presidential elections. They have, you know, the opposition has actually maintained a fairly strong contingency of people in the media, in the mass media system, even though that's not what people think from outside. But actually, a lot of the supporters would say Chavez didn't clean shop enough. Like Ooh. he he left himself too open to so many Ooh. original interests, right? And so like that there's always this delicate dance. And like I don't, you know, I don't have the answers. I don't think any of us mm-hmm. have answers. We're still struggling with that. But I think that in terms of a moral compass, that the question you asked about that is that the people must be our moral compass. Like and and the people is not necessarily just us individually. Like it is what is best for the masses of people, right? Mm. And and if we think about that, then we know that structures like systems like capitalism are not sustainable because they because the only way in which they exist is that the the wealthy few are only wealthy because of the ways in which they exploit the labor and the exactly of the masses of people right so so that's where you know for me that's where i think we derive our moral compass
1: thank you thank you so next question is what dystopian film have you watched recently (laughs)
0: oh let's see recently so i started watching this so it's a it's a series on that. Like, the colony
1: okay which aptly titled I think...
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so the thing is i'm i'm like eight or nine episodes in So part of what's happened is like apparently there's some like alien force. I don't even know because I feel like it's I feel like it's actually going to be more complicated than this. But so far, they make it like it's this alien force that has come in and they basically like killed a whole slew of people and they've established these colonies and they like handpicked certain political leaders to make sure that they would maintain power. They're basically proxies. For oh. the alien people, or whatever, right? I'm not even sure I know what's happening in the show right now. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because no there's, there's a couple that's married, right? The okay. wife is secretly working for the resistance, and her oh. husband was recently recruited into the government, and she's basically spying on her husband for the resistance. <laughs> and okay. and okay. yes, yeah, so it's. I don't know. I that, sounds, that, that sounds
1: very oh, the tea is spilling. That sounds very <laughs> messy. <laughs> I want to move on. <laughs> on your in, your in your article, The Pandemic of Racial Capitalism, Another World is Possible. You then quote the Milton Friedman, and I recommend everyone please check out this amazing article. You speak of revolutionary potential and possibility.
0: Mm-hmm. My
1: question is: where do you think the energy? I mean, we saw a lot, we saw you mentioned that we saw a lot of that energy with the George Floyd. How do you think we sustain and maintain that revolution? evolutionary oh, potentiality that's, i know it's like a big one isn't it that's the, <laughs> million,
0: that is the million dollar question to be honest because you know uh, even just in the last 10 years i think we've seen moments at least in the u.s context we've seen moments like this right like i think people felt that same kind of energy around ferguson in mm-hmm. twenty. What was that, 14, 15 i think people felt a similar kind of energy around trayvon martin in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, 2012 2013 and you know, I so and I ask, I guess this actually kind of ties to your question again about the the role of academics or intellectuals or organizers. Yes. I I think and and when I say that too, I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily talking about people who have jobs at universities. When I talk about
1: intellectuals,
0: okay. I'm t- I'm actually talking about people. Who make it their business to to think, right? You can be a laborer and be an intellectual. Of course, not. It's not about your job. It's actually about the your orientation toward the world. Mm -hmm. Because my father is an electric is an electrician, and I would consider him an intellectual. Yes. Um, So and and didn't finish college, but I would consider him an intellectual.
1: Oh, where do you think the energy of this revolution? Yeah, how do we maintain it or sustain it?
0: Exactly. And so I think that. For those of us who, you know, have committed ourselves to this, we have to be constantly thinking about that work in the liminal spaces, right, in the in-between time, and we have to be ready. Like, and, and I think that that, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reason why Carmi Torre always use that phrase, "ready for revolution," because you always have to be yes. ready. Like, you have to be thinking mm. about it even in the lulls, right? Even when even when there's not sort of mass upheaval and mass protests, we have to know that there's always the potential or the possibility for that spark, and that we have to be, and that's why we study in between, right? That's why we study mm. our faith. That's why we say these are the things that we don't necessarily want to replicate. These are the new ways in which our enemy has figured out how to attack us, right? Because one of the things okay. that my father, you know, he was an organizer as a college student, and one of the things that he said, you know, is that they really used college campuses as organizing sites because they could get on them and access to them easily. One of the ways in which the government has responded to that is that they now make U.S. college students get, what do you call those, like insurance liability waivers and you have to sign up for space. Like that wasn't a thing when my parents were, you know, in school. And that's actually directly designed to discourage that kind of-
1: Oh, wow. That thinking- yeah exactly Or those those kind of fervors i mean it it speaks to what angela davis said recently where she says um one never knows when the conditions may arise that allow for fundamental change so that's why you stay organized
0: exactly
1: so another question then kind of going in line with your interests, the question is what does it look like to be in organizational and institutional solidarity with people of lands who have the state apparatus like cuba and venezuela for those who are asking me to reframe that question what do niggas do that don't have a socialist government? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's funny. Well, you know, that I mean that's the case that, that we're in. And so honestly, that is what took me to Venezuela in the first place. So like yeah. as a you know grad student, so my degree is in anthropology. And like, anthropologists are like super, they're super territorial. And like, I really struggled when I was in school because I used to try to tell people all the time, I don't necessarily care about anthropology. I don't even necessarily Mm -hmm. care about Venezuela in terms of the state. What I care about is the places where Black people, in in my case, are struggling for their own kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And in this moment, Venezuela seems to exist in an institutional and structural way that supports that. But if that was somewhere else, I would have been somewhere else, right? So, like, it's not... For me, it's not about the specificities of Venezuela beyond the fact that, that they have been moving towards this socialist government, right? And so, like, I actually think that that's the most important thing about international solidarity. That's the most important thing about never limiting our view of what's possible to our physical space. Because mm. I... If I only thought about what was possible as a person who grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, I would have no sense of Palestinian women who are... You know, slingshotting rocks back at you know at tanks, right? Like I would have no sense mm-hmm. of indigenous women in Chiapas, or you know, I would have no sense of you know the, what's happening in Haiti now, or Sudanese. Like I would have no sense of any of these places, right? And so I think that when we when we reorient ourselves, when we reorient ourselves towards thinking of ourselves as a global majority rather than a minority mm. in so developed countries, then we actually see that we have much more potential for power than we realize.
1: This has been a dope conversation and I'm going to have to get a commitment now so I can play this back to you. Can I get you on and again in the future?
0: Of course, of course. Okay,
1: brilliant. See that, guys? <laughs> well, that's a commitment there. <laughs> this has been an awesome conversation. I'm going to leave Dr. Layla Brown's socials in the comments. And I pray, guys, that she follows me on Twitter eventually. I,
0: do know that that follow-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. On IG, not on Twitter. I'm waiting for the follow back. I'm waiting me. for that like, <laughs> girl. This has been an amazing conversation, guys. You are listening to The Malcolm Effect with your host, Mama Dutal. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on YouTube. And until next time, take care.